0: The scripture for today's teaching comes from the book of Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink-offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is God's word.
1: You have to forgive me, I just spilled coffee on myself backstage and (laughs) thought about changing my shirt. But then I thought, no, this will be a good illustration, as we'll see in a few moments. Well, I do want to talk to you this morning about paradox. Artists and scientists have long delighted in paradox. Paradox. The famed uh, physicist Niels Bohr uh, once wrote, The opposite of a correct statement is a false statement, but the opposite of a profound truth may well be a profound truth. And a paradox, if you even know a little about modern physics, uh, is, is very much a part of the scientific endeavor today, but not just scientists, artists. Uh, the writer Oscar Wilde said in the picture of Dorian, Dorian Gray, The way of paradoxes is the way of truth. To test reality we must see it on the tight rope. And that's what I want us uh, to consider this morning, the way of paradox, which the writer uh, Jen Pollock-Michelle says in her new book, The Gift of Paradox, is the way of holding up truths logically at variance with one another. And I'm talking about paradox because it seems like today we have lost our appetite for it, uh, for uh, both and. Increasingly, we live in an either-or world that has little patience for ambiguity or gray or mystery. Increasingly, we all see this. Uh, We are sorted into binaries of one and zero. Red or blue, uh, us or them, victims and villains, either-or. And if you think about it, there's a lot of reasons for this. The undercurrent of anger fear that pervades our current cultural moment, it makes us crave control and yearn for certainty. And this desire for uh, control and certainty has even uh, infected the church. And there's a place uh, for certainty in terms of the essentials of our faith. God gave us scripture, the Gospel of John says, so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God gives us promises that we can build our life on. And these promises are meant to be clear. And yet this same Bible is full of paradoxes. Indeed, paradoxes are essential to the Christian faith, are they not? Is Jesus fully God or is he fully man? Is God one being or is God in three persons? Is God in sovereign control over all that comes to pass or do we have human responsibility? Well this sermon is a plea for the blessing of paradox in an either-or world. I think it's appropriate to talk about paradox in the letter to the Philippians. If you think about it, the whole setting of the letter presents us with a paradox. On the one hand, it's written from a Roman jail, from which Paul has no idea if he'll be released or executed. What is the one thing Paul is certain about, that his situation is dire? Of this, he is sure. On the other hand, Philippians is a signature letter of joy in the Bible, And that's been our overriding question over these weeks, how can we learn what Paul says he has come to learn? How can we learn the secret of joy? Of having no anxiety, of being content in any circumstance? How can we get that? And one of the answers is developing a lived appetite for paradox. So in our brief time together this morning I want us to focus on a few paradoxes in our text For these verses happen to contain some of the most important paradoxes in the Christian faith. And start just with the beginning of verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This verse can be confusing because if there's anything that summarizes the gospel, the good news for the Apostle Paul, it's that our right standing with God, our right standing with God, our justification is his word. This has nothing whatsoever to do with our work or our working out. God's favor, God's smile, is not tied to our being deserving, or our working for it, or our being godly. Rather, Paul writes, this is from uh, the letter to Romans, chapter 4, verse 5, to the one who does not work, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. God does not say, I will love you if you obey me or because you have been good or godly. Rather, the good news is that God embraces us. God embraces all of us in our brokenness. For as Desmond Tutu once put it, in our own ways, we are all broken. And out of that brokenness, we hurt one another. But God embraces us in our broken places. And God says, now... Now that I have embraced you, now walk out and live in the light as God's beloved children. This is the gospel that we must hear again and again and again. It's not only the way we enter the Christian faith, but it is the way we grow in the Christian faith. To lay down our futile efforts to justify our own lives and receive and rest upon Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel. As an old hymn puts it, weary, working, burdened one. How come you toil so? Cease your doing. All was done a long, long time ago. It is finished. So cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Ah, this is the... Word of grace, the gospel of grace, in a weary world of performing and doing. We need to hear it every day. And yet, the apostle of grace writes here, work out your salvation. Notice he does not say work for your salvation, as if there is some deficit that needs to be made up, as if God has done his part, but now we must do ours, that we must add to or supplement or complete what is unfinished which is sadly the trap that we keep falling into. We keep falling into that trap. And yet he does say, work out your salvation. And the word here translated, work out, implies, well, what we think it implies in, in modern day English. Work out. <laughs> Continuous striving, strenuous personal effort. The idea is one of progressively coming to experience deeper and deeper, more and more, all of the aspects and riches of our once and for all salvation. That's why in the Bible, if you read it carefully, salvation is spoken of in three tenses. You have been saved, past tense. You have been, that is you are safe, you are secure, that nothing can separate you from the love of God, nothing. You are being saved, present tense, and you are growing up into this new identity you've been given it's a process and one day you will be you will be when God completes what God began God will complete he will but until then we are in a process which is why our text begins in verse 12 with the word therefore in light of the, all the words that have come before going back to chapter 1 verse 27 remember Paul is sketching uh, sketching a portrait of the answer to a question, what makes for a worthy life? And that's a question we all have, what makes for a worthy life? And he is sketching, here is a portrait of a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. It is one that stands firm. It is one that stands firm in unity, even when there are divided minds. And that this unity, he says, has been made possible, is only possible by our humility and then in verses 5 to 11 he's just given Jesus as a supreme example of humility so verse 12 begins in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for you therefore work out your salvation so you see, you hear the paradox don't you is our salvation something freely given or do we need to work it out is our salvation all of, gri- all of grace come and rest or does it come with demands, come and die? Is our relationship with God by faith alone or does our obedience affect our life with God? And the Bible's answer to all of these questions is yes. That is the paradox of grace. And please do not fall off the tightrope. Do not fall off this tightrope or you will lose something essential to God's will for your life. I quoted Oscar Wilde earlier, who said, the way of paradox is the way of truth. And he says, we must walk the tightrope. And you could say that historically, and today, many of the places the church has gotten into trouble, is when we've fallen off that tightrope on the one side or the other. And we're all prone to this. But the Apostle Paul is not afraid to say that the Christian life is both and. It is both a gift of grace and, he calls it, a race to run. And a battle in which we are called to fight. He calls Epaphroditus his fellow soldier. It is a battle. And Jesus says, strive to enter the narrow gate. We're not striving to be loved. We already are beloved children of God. But now we are striving to grow up into this new identity. And that's how our faith grows. That's how faith grows. Only to the extent you obey God will you come to understand and know God. This is instructive and helpful for us today when people say, I feel very, I feel very far from God. Or if you say, I, I, just, I feel like God is very distant in my life. The next question is always, who moved? See, if your faith is feeling flabby, if your passion is low, if your subjective confidence in your identity and your new identity is God's beloved child, if that is low, the question is, well, have you been working out your salvation with continuous personal effort and with fear and trembling? And that's another paradox, isn't it? Are we supposed to love God or are we supposed to fear God? And the Bible's answer is again, Yes, this is the way of becoming wise in this world. And when the Bible calls us to fear God, it's not the servile fear of, I'd better measure up or God will be disappointed in me. Rather, fear of God in the Bible is more like the reverence and awe of a child who so deeply respects his or her father or mother that you'd never want to disappoint the one who loves you so well. That's the dynamic. The more you love God, the more fearful you will become of ever offending him. You'll never want to break the heart of the one who loves you most and best. And so, the apostle of grace calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that's a rather direct question, isn't it? Are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling? You can assess yourself. Does your life say that you're working out, working out your salvation with fear and trembling? And could it be the loss of this paradox of grace explains so much of what is afflicting our lives and certainly afflicting the American church today. On the one hand, lazy, undisciplined, undedicated Christians who come across as entitled and judgmental self-righteous and unkind because we aren't working out our salvation with fear and dribbling. We aren't striving after Christ's likeness We're not running in such a way as to gain the prize. On the other hand, the church is also simultaneously filled with anxious and ashamed and timid followers of Jesus who were incredibly insecure and not bold and confident. And why is this? It's because we're not receiving and resting upon Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. We're still depending upon ourselves. So what do you need to hear this morning? Well, some of you need to hear, stop. Just stop. And lay your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet and stand in him alone gloriously complete he makes us lie down sometimes psalm 23 you are wearing yourself out weary child never enough but for whom and others of you need to hear you had better watch out that's what the apostle paul says let the one who takes let the one who thinks he stands secure take heed lest he fall, lest all your labor be in vain. And most of us at different times, we need to hear both and grace for today and grace to grow up into our new identity. So if you want your life to change, if you want to be different, if you want your future to be different from your past, is it up to you or is it up to God? When it comes to life change, when it comes to life change, is it up to you or is it up to God? Well, that's another paradox, isn't it? And you can see that in these verses if you'll look again with me at verses 12 and 13. This is an amazing sentence, Philippians two twelve and 13. The first half is, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which looks as if everything depended upon us and our good actions. But the second half goes on, for it is God who works in you, which looks as if God did everything and we nothing. C.S. Lewis commenting on this verse says, We get stuck trying to understand and to separate into watertight compartments what exactly God does and what we do. We try to separate these when God and humans are working together. And of course, we begin by thinking it's like two people working together. So we think, well, well, God does his part and I do my part. Lewis says, but this way of thinking breaks down because God is not like that. He is inside of you as well as outside. And he says, even if we could understand who did what, I do not think human language could properly express it. Lewis is saying this is another mystery. It is a paradox. And today it sounds like this. Is God in complete control over all that comes to pass in your life, or do you have individual personal responsibility? And the Bible's answer again and again is yes. And this is one of the most important lessons, Stephen Covey says, to learn in life, to reject the tyranny of the either-or and to embrace the beauty of the both-and. And there's such liberty in these verses, verses 12 and 13, for they tell us that God is absolutely in control of your life and you have the responsibility to make choices that honor God, that work out your salvation. They tell us that God is not like a concept or an idea, like gravity, but that God is an empowering personal presence within you. And they tell us that grace is not just an idea; it's not just a term to be defined, but grace is an enabling power in your life. That's what the verse says: "For it is God who works in you." That, that's that's verse thirteen. For it is God who works in you. And just stop. If you have a pen or a highlighter out, just highlight that phrase for it is God who works in you because I find so few people today so few Christians aware of the Holy Spirit aware of God's empowering presence within you I mean do we realize if you belong to Christ what resources you have within you that you are not alone that is a lie You are not alone and you are not on your own. You have the spirit of the incarnate, obedient, crucified, resurrected, and ascended Lord of the universe animating you and empowering you from within you. And he loves you most and best. So how could you ever feel hopeless when you know Philippians 2 verse 13 for it is God who works in you. That's another paradox by the way that your strength will come, your strength will come through acknowledging your weakness. That's a paradox. We all, want to, we all want to be strong. How will this strength come? On the one hand, strength comes through saying, I can't. I can't do this on my own. I can't handle this. I can't manage this. And it is so hard for us, especially in Los Angeles, to admit we have failed. Or to say, I can't. To be weak or to look incompetent. But if you can say that, on the other hand, it opens the door to receiving. But God can. God can. Whatever is wearing you out, whatever is oppressing you or pushing you down that you just feel hemmed in and overwhelmed by. But God can help you. He is a very present help to those who are in trouble. God is at work in you and you receive his strength by letting go of your own futile efforts to control. That's what verse 13 says. It is God who works in you both to will and to work. How sufficient is this help? He is at work in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. That he not only gives you the ability to change, God promises to give you the desire. Isn't this amazing? He promises to give us the desires to change. So you might want to change, but you feel, ah, you can't. That's right. That's right. You can't on your own, but God can, and he can change you deeper than at the level of your own behavior. He can reach into the soil of your very desires, into the soil of what you want. God promises to change you at that deepest level of what you want and desire. That's where God promises to reach into the soil of your life, so that life change in you is not superficial or temporary or behavioral, but it touches the very depth of your being. How sufficient is our God, and how great is His help! What a marvelous gift, this paradox that God is at work in your life, the God who is absolutely sovereign over everything. And I mean everything, everything that He has allowed in your life that has broken your heart and confuses and overwhelms you. Your past, present and future. And so you can make your choices today without the anxiety, and it is a crushing anxiety that it is all up to you and you had better get it right. Oh, that is agonizing. But that is the pressure a lot of us live under. And you know why? Because we don't walk by faith. That's the pressure we live under when facing a choice. Uh, I better get this right, or my whole future depends on it. You know what that is? That's terrifying. That's paralyzing. But if you know the paradox of these verses, that God is absolutely sovereign, and you have a responsibility to work out your salvation, then you make your choice in the confidence that all things will work together for the good of those who love God. See, it's only by paradox and only by this paradox will you have the peace when you don't know what to do. And when our future is so uncertain but you say, God, I want to honor you, then comes the peace. Then comes the peace. And that's another paradox of these verses. Come back. Come back. It's another paradox of these verses that the mundane has extraordinary consequence for your life the mundane has extraordinary consequence for your life see we tend to think the real test of faith are the big test you know are you are you willing to lay down your life for Jesus but by definition those tests are exceedingly rare if they ever come what's far more important and formative in your life are your ordinary and everyday choices and I'll show it to you in the text I mean right after this unprecedented call to work out your salvation with fear and trembling what is the next verse? What is the arena? What is the stage? Look at verse 14. The next words, he says, Do all things without grumbling. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, don't you expect for him to make some grand pronouncement of what the, a worthy life is supposed to look like? And instead, he says, Do all things without grumbling. That the very litmus test of a worthy life is one that is learned not to grumble. About what? Well, read verse 14, do all things without grumbling. Do all things. And we need to talk about this word grumbling because God's people are prone to it. We're prone to grumble. Most scholars, and I think they're right, think this is a reference to the Old Testament where God's people in Exodus and Numbers are called out for grumbling in the wilderness. And here's the thing, if you read those stories... Numbers 11, Numbers 16, if you read those stories, the people were not being unreasonable about the things they were grumbling about. They had reasons to grumble, lack of food, lack of water, the presence of fearsome enemies. And yet God says, when you grumble against Moses and Aaron, God says, why do you grumble against me? See, because your grumbling is showing that you don't trust God. Why do you grumble against me, God says. And I encourage you to read those stories. Read Numbers 11. Read Numbers 16. And you'll see that God takes this grumbling very seriously. It's fatal. It is a fatal condition in those stories. It is not a peccadillo of character. It is fatal in those stories. And this is not hyperbole. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul warns the church at Corinth, don't be like those that grumbled in the wilderness and who died there. Now, what is the implication? They did not enter the promised land because of their grumbling. And what's the implication? What is the implication? (laughs) He's saying, you're... Your, your whole standing with God is affected by your grumbling, complaining heart. See, if you say, oh, God will forgive me, we all grumble, don't you see you've fallen off the tightrope? You've compromised something very real and very important to the Bible's message, that our grumbling matters to God. God says we are to do all things without grumbling. Well, what is grumbling? Well, I think we know what it is, don't we? It's that critical, complaining spirit that comes so naturally to some of us, especially if you're competent and capable, because you see a problem and you see something not being handled well. And you think, what are they doing? What is their problem? Why aren't they fixing this? And as in the Old Testament, it's legitimate. You grumble because you feel entitled to. You see a problem and it's there. But what you're forgetting is who you're actually grumbling against. The commentator P.T. O'Brien says in Philippians, grumbling refers, quote, to those who create ill will instead of harmony within the community. Those who create ill will instead of harmony within the community. By talking about people with a critical and divisive spirit. See, we tend to think the test of our faith is what we say we believe on Sundays. No, what's really in your heart comes out in the mundane. Are you a grumbler? Are you a complainer? And do you realize, do you realize that is not a statement about them, the people you're grumbling against. That's a statement about you and your relationship with God that God has reasons for allowing these circumstances in your life to test you, to see what's in your heart. The mundane details of your life, these have extraordinary consequences, which leads to a final paradox in this section, and that is that you must labor to rest. You must labor to rest. I know because it's part of living in the city of Los Angeles that so many of us, are tired and we are weary and we are apathetic some of you have lost your passion for Christ you've lost your first love so any call to do anything just sounds like one more thing we're not doing and it's easy to get cynical and if you wonder how do you get out of that rut well you must labor to rest Where is that paradox in these verses? Well, it's in the juxtaposition of terms that the Apostle Paul uses. On the one hand are these directives. Obey, work out, be blameless, innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted world. On the one hand, there is this very high call. But on the one hand, there are these wonderful assurances. For how does the whole section begin? In verse 12 with, therefore, my beloved... Therefore, my beloved, verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you. Children of God, you are lights in the world. You shine. You see, you shine. Shine needs to be read more as a statement of fact than as a calling. And isn't that what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? He doesn't say, you must be lights of the world. What does he say? He says, you are the light of the world. But is that how you feel? Is that how you see yourself? Blameless, innocent children of God without blemish or spot. (laughs) I don't think so. And you see it's another paradox. Just look at this phrase, blameless and without blemish. Is that us? Is that you? On the one hand, the Bible says in Ephesians 1 verse 4 that God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless. It says God has reconciled us through Christ's death that we might be, this is Colossians 1 verse 22, without blemish before God. We were were chosen to be without blemish. Ephesians 1, verse 4, we are without blemish. Colossians 1, verse 22. And then in a letter to the Ephesians, uh, chapter 5, says that Christ intends to present us, his bride, the church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You see the paradox in these verses? They're saying become in practice what you already are by grace. You are blameless, beloved, innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of this world. Now, become and practice what you already are by God's grace. He said, how do I do that? Well, you must labor to rest. If you desire to receive and rest upon Christ alone, you must labor. Our text puts it in verse 16, hold fast to the word of life. That's how Paul counsels them. That's how this calling is made possible by, the beginning of verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. And that word of life is the gospel. And then he, he follows one of, this, uh, one of the richest sections of uh, doctrine in all the New, Te- New Testament by talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And if you read closely, you think, what's that doing in there? And truth be told, it's always baffled scholars. You know, why this reference to Timothy and Epaphroditus? Is, is it just travelogue? Is it just Paul telling us, you know, what he was doing and whom he hoped to send? I don't think so. I think it's Paul's way of saying that this calling I'm giving you to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, that it has to be seen to believe, to be believed. And here are some living examples of people you know who are holding fast to the gospel, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And what does that gospel tell us? It tells us that even though we are grumblers, that we can learn to say, God, you have placed me here to test me, to grow and to change, so I will not grumble, even though and even where I have been, far from blameless, Though I have been complaining and critical, yes, I have, but God, but God in Christ has reconciled us to himself through the cross where he died, where he died for all of our grumbling. Past tense, he died. So put it to death. He died that we might be blameless and without blemish. Children of God, we are. And when you hold fast to that, you know what that turns you into? It turns you into men and women who no longer grumble about anything. Because you're holding fast to the gospel of grace. And not only is this possible, Timothy and Epaphroditus, it is precisely the types of men and women God intends to turn us into. By his empowering presence and by his enabling grace, God, you have showed me such grace, amazing grace, and now it is that grace that empowers me and enables me and makes me want to show others the very grace that I once received and that I do receive. And that's what changes you. You see, the dynamics of the gospel hold fast to the word of life, labor to rest. So if you feel stuck and cold in your faith this morning, I say to you, labor for it is God who works in you so rest and so John Murray summarized it God works and we also work and we are able to work because it is God who is at work within us and I hope as you walk out today that that fills you with such hope that you are not alone you are not alone and you are not on your own that God's grace is for you and this grace empowers and enables you, even through our broken lives, to shine like stars. And that is a final paradox. To shine, we must be broken open. To shine, we must be cut open. To receive the grace that changes us and shines through us. Amen. Oh, let me pray an old Puritan prayer. Lord let me learn my paradox, the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul, this is the victorious soul, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord in the daytime, in the daytime stars can be seen from the deepest wells and the deeper the well, the brighter thy stars shine. So let me find thy light in my darkness, thy joy in my sorrow, thy riches in my poverty, thy grace in my sin, and thy glory in my valley. This is the word of life. Hold fast to it. Amen.